Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have a fascinating topic for you today and three wonderful guests to talk about it. It may be a little surprising to you. Because in the past, we've done several Beeson podcasts on church planting, how to begin new churches, new ministries. And that's a wonderful emphasis that we have in our school and that very much needs to be emphasized. But today, we're going to look at the other end of that. Should a church close its doors? And when does that decision need to take place? How should it be done? When is it right? for a church to go kaput. Well, uh, we do know churches, that happens to churches all the time. And we have today three guests who are all experienced pastors, are also involved in different ways in the ministry of Beeson Divinity School. I want to introduce them, each one, and then ask them to speak in turn, give a little bit of introduction of themselves and their own ministry and their perspective on when should a church close its doors. And then we'll just open up to a general conversation. So I am delighted to welcome, first of all, my Beeson colleague, Dr. Mark Devine. Dr. Devine is an Associate Professor of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School and teaches in the area of history and doctrine in our curriculum. He's also a bivocational pastor at the First Baptist Church of Helena in Alabama. He's been a missionary to Thailand, has also had great experience as a pastor in other states and other churches. So we'll listen to Dr. Mark Devine in just a moment. I'm also delighted to welcome to this conversation Reverend Ronald Sterling. He is the pastor of St. Paul Smithfield African Methodist Episcopal Church here in Alabama. He's also a student in our Beeson Doctor of Ministry program. He's a wonderful interlocutor. I've had other conversations with him, and he'll bring a lot of insight to this discussion. And Dr. Tom Fuller is also with us today. Dr. Fuller is the Director of Ministry Leadership Development, Placement, and Assessment. What is it you don't do at Beeson Divinity School, Tom? Also been a pastor in several different states and has great insight into the whole issue of the art of ministry and how to develop uh, church life. So these three brothers, Mark, Ron, and Tom, may I call you by your first names, are going to talk with us about this general topic, when should a church close its doors? So let's begin with Mark Devine. Tell us a little bit about what perspective you bring to this, and we'll go around the table and then open it up. Mark? Well, thank you, Dr. George. First, I would say it's a topic that matters a great deal uh, to me, uh, not least because I've virtually been on the payroll of a local church continuously since about 1977. And so uh, my life has been spent in local churches. But uh, not so long ago, around 1994, I entered a time of my life when I had accepted a position as a professor at a theological school in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And that led to a period in which I found myself uh, doing interim pastorates and uh, that sometimes would morph into bivocational pastorates and found myself uh, being called upon to 
try to help and address problems of very troubled churches and began to think a lot about declining churches and uh, the issue of whether a church sometimes needs to die. And it's interesting that you mentioned you'd done some podcasts that focus on starting churches. And uh, my experience at a couple of churches, particularly one in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, has helped me to see that sometimes the dying of a church can be uh, organically corrected, uh, connected to uh, the starting of a church. Sometimes the losing of life can uh, lead to the gaining of new life in a congregational sense. Jesus said, "When a seed falls into the ground." So when, when we were when we were dealing with that church, that was one of the main passages I went to. I said, "Lest the seed die," and uh, that seed that seed did die, and it it has borne great fruit. And so it's become a topic that that I see as not one that's only uh, only overshadowed by darkness and grief and sadness uh, and bereavement, uh, but it can be a topic in certain uh, certain contexts. It can be a topic that uh, that shows us how how God uh, transforms and breathes new life into places that that have in many ways reached the end of their 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 ministry in certain ways, but can give birth to to a whole new ministry. Okay, we want to come back to some of that. But, Ron, let's turn to you now and have you tell us a little bit about your experience in this field. Back in 1997, I was asked to pastor a small church, and that church's name was St. Stephen AME Church. And it only had about five members in attendance at that time. Uh, the church was in the airport area. The community was going down. And when I was asked to do that, I was really encouraged and full of excitement. It was a church that no one at that time uh, wanted to go to because it had already had about 20-plus pastors from within our denomination. So I was just beginning my denomination or my ordinational process. And so I was excited about going. And I found that, yes, the church was dying. Some people would say that the church was actually dead. There was no Bible study taking place. People were just going to church on Sunday for maybe about 45 minutes to an hour. Just really no life within the church. And the Lord uh, ministered to me uh, through Ezekiel 37 about the Valley of Dry Bones. And uh, he said there was nothing that was impossible with him. And that if I would have the faith and believe that he would resurrect the church. And he did just that. And that church recently consolidated with another church went from five members to a little over a 100 members. And so it has been consolidated with another smaller church. And that's just one instance. And I just recently moved over to a St. Paul AME church in the Smithfield area, where here again we had a church that was dying, and the Lord God has brought life back to the church. And now its membership on the average is a little over 200 a Sunday. Tom, tell us about your experience. My experience has mainly come in these last 12 years as I came to this role at Beeson working uh, ministry leadership development. Our work with students in their ministry uh, internships, their field education uh, while they go through the Master of Divinity program. In that work as well as the work I do with placement, I have had contact with a number of churches who will call seeking to secure, if possible, a student pastor. Uh, They have maybe dwindled to the point where they uh, no longer can employ a pastor full-time and now have to go with a bivocational person uh, in that role and also uh, often recognize that, that maybe a student might be a good option for them. And so through those conversations as well as some of the uh, itinerant preaching that I continue to do and have done now since coming to this position, I've had contact with several churches who 
uh, have reached a very low point in their uh, attendance and are beginning to wrestle with that question, what do we do from here? Uh, how do we go forward? Can we find anyone to to come to a position here to serve as pastor? And if we do, will that person be uh, able to give us the kind of time and leadership that will allow us to, to maybe move off of this plateau that we've reached and move the church to a healthier and more sustainable position longer term. So those conversations have been rewarding, and it's a valid and very important kind of ministry to be with churches in in critical times like this. But there are no easy Mm. (laughs) answers. Every situation is a bit different. There are some common factors in many of them, but uh, you have to take each one very individually and, and look at how they have come to be in the place they are now and uh, then many of the environmental or contextual circumstances that they're facing and and try to pray and discern how to to go forward faithfully. You know, one of the things that strikes me just listening to the three of you talk is the question of how do you really know when a church has reached this place? I mean, there are a lot of churches that are really tiny, very small, almost as small as yours, Ron, uh, but they they stay that way for decades. You know, they've been small and tiny forever and ever, and they still go on. Who is to say that they've reached a crisis point where the plug needs to be pulled? How do you diagnose this as a pastor? How do you discern what's happening in a congregation? I'd like to identify different ways that churches do die. You mentioned earlier churches do die. We don't have an obituary column that we look at, but they do die. And so one question that we might raise is that to recognize the various ways they die. One way they die is what I would call uninvested death. And this is when the last 12 people, oftentimes they're elderly, through exhaustion and no energy or leadership, they decide to close the doors. They disperse. They walk away. They don't find a seller. Uh, another uninvested death would be uh, they do sell, and the, the building becomes a restaurant or a craft shop or maybe, in the best-case scenario, a wedding chapel. But these kind of deaths of congregations are hard to spin. They bring grief. But there are other kinds of death where a congregation that has been in great decline decides that they can't go on as that congregation, but they can in- reinvest themselves in some way. They can merge with it sometimes with another congregation. And they can do so successfully. In the Birmingham News just this past week, it was on the cover of the religion section, Declining Church Gains New Life Through Merger. I led a church to do something similar in Kansas City. And these mergers can take on various configurations. And you can see a death of a church leading to the emergence of a new church. Not every congregation has that option, but certain circumstances can make it possible And where there are interim pastors or bivocational pastors, particularly who are willing to leave and lose their ministry roles and play a kind of a midwife mediator role there, this kind of thing can happen, and it is happening in different parts of the country today. When we say uh, that a church is dead, what are the symptoms? How do we determine that? When do we know that that's the case? I'm not sure that there's a light bulb that goes on. But what I would say is that I have seen a couple of contexts where I came to the view. For example, in this downtown church in Kansas City, Missouri, the congregation had been in decline for 30 years, and they were saddled with a magnificent facility, uh, but 
it was one that was burdened with extraordinary uh, deferred maintenance costs. The way to get from that place to a sustainable congregation in that location, which was a strategic location for the advance of the gospel without question, I racked my brain and I looked at ways to move forward, and I came to the conclusion, because of the drastic cultural change in that neighborhood, that I was not the right person to lead that congregation forward. And I came to the conclusion that we, as a congregation, would not were not best equipped to identify who would be best fit for that context. And that led me to the next question, well, who would be best to find the right person for this context. And I began to look for a congregation in the same denomination, Southern Baptists, who were theologically compatible with us and who had been effective in a context like ours and decided, why don't we ask them to come and see if they would take on the responsibility of finding a replanter which is a word that you hear being used more and more, the replanting, a replanter to come. Uh, but that would require our congregation to give up leadership because you merge with a large church and you've lost your control of that congregation. So that's where I think the language of death becomes appropriate. We were falling on our sword in terms of control. And we also said this, Tom, is we decided that Our goal was not to try to create a church on that location. Our first goal was not to create a a church that we would want to attend. But rather, our goal was to try to see a church planted that had a great chance for reaching that neighborhood with the gospel. And uh, so in that case, it it is a case-by-case thing, isn't it? How do we get from where we are to where we want to be, and identifying where you want to be is an important thing. And when we recognize that we want to see the gospel flourish here more than we want to see a church here that we necessarily will want to be a part of going forward. One question I want to ask, Ron, because you you have this small, very small church, dwindled almost to just a tiny few, now resurrected, as you say, through a merger, kind of like Mark was talking about in Kansas City, but here in, in the Birmingham area. The people who were in that very small group that was remaining, was there a sense of grief? They were, they were losing their identity? They were losing that sense of being a distinctive people of God? Did they go through that as they faced you know, the closing down of one operation and the merging into a, a greater reality somewhere else? How did you deal with that? Yes, there was grief in that process. And so what happened was the church that I was a a pastor of the St. Stephen AME Church. Then that church merged with Miles Memorial AME Church, and um, the bishop assigned another pastor to that church. So I didn't actually transition over with them. I was assigned to St. Paul AME Church. But there was some grief because members of St. Stephen had been there for qu- quite a long time. So there was a grief and a separation. But uh, what helped in that process was the teaching of the body of Christ, the teaching of the body of Christ, letting people know and understand that although we're members of a local church and we may have heritage and background, but when you look at the body as a whole, then of course we're not so tied into the building or the name, but the ministry 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that afforded a greater opportunity to do greater ministry. So it's not so much a dying as it was a separation from the name and the location, but to see the greater picture of how we now minister as a body of believers, that which we could not do with a few numbers, now that has increased, which provides greater opportunity for ministry. Let me ask a question to all three of you, because all of, all of you have been involved in ministries that have morphed or died or uh, been resurrected in some other form. So if you've been, you've been involved in what might be called a closing down of a church in a way. We've talked about grief, but did any of you experience anger? Were people mad at you? Did they hold you responsible for killing a dream they may have wanted to keep alive? How did you deal with that if that was the case? Yes, I did witness uh, some of that. And I think maybe even at the other church, they may have experienced some things like that. And I think what happens is that it, it requires a lot of prayer and a lot of communication. People need to understand. It requires teaching them the Word of God so to help through that process. Our families help build some of those churches, very small churches, so there's a lot of... Um, family ties to that and the anger it's real it's it's a real emotion and a process that people will go through but you keep sharing the love of God you keep ministering to them coming up with ways to do biblical conflict to help resolve some of those issues that may surface I found that a congregation in Kansas City uh, very very stiff opposition from four strong lay people who had all been there at least 40 years 40 to 60 years and these these lay people were deeply opposed to the idea that that I raised in the congregation and uh, they remained opposed all, four of them did at least other leaders in the church had had very much the opposite view and that bridge was not spanned. Eventually, three of them did leave. And the one who stayed, who stayed opposed, her husband was always for it. And that helped me. But today, that fourth member of the lay cartel that opposed the transformation of that church is deeply involved and happily involved in a small group in that church that now has over 1,500 coming to downtown Kansas City to hear the gospel when it had dropped below 200. Anytime you're involved in that process with the church in a pastoral role, you're bound to, I think, catch some of the anger and grief that surrounds that process. And I think your polity has something to do with just what you will experience, because obviously where other entities are involved and the congregation itself uh, does not... Um, exclusively have the decision-making prerogative, then there's some deflection there to other parties. But I would say still, ideally, across various polities, that the pastor really should try to serve far more in a facilitative role to facilitate a congregational decision, even if that decision is not exclusively the congregation. Still, I think they need to feel vested in, in that process, need to feel that they have a voice in that process. As Ron has already pointed out, I think leading them to have the right kind of focus on the body of Christ, on this being one local expression of the church of Jesus Christ, but that our Savior has promised to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And therefore, what is happening here is not the end of the story and God's work will, will continue. But facilitating that kind of decision making and ministering to the congregation by the word and also by your, your care and counsel of the members as they do express 
anger, as they express grief, as they go through the deliberative process. That's all, you know, a very important part of the closing process. And I think it's also important that we work with the people where they are, because if they're grieving, sometimes I think leadership can say, well, this is the best thing to do, and this is, you know, the direction we're going to take. But then we've not really met the people where they were in reference to the grief that they're experiencing. It's a real emotion. We should not just push it under the rug and just keep moving. We should have something in place that if we're going to merge a church or if a church is dying, deal with them where they are because it's real. It's just like losing a loved one. Now, all of you might want to comment about this because uh, often in analyses of American Protestantism today, especially mainline Protestantism, we hear a lot about church decline, people losing many denominations, losing hundreds of thousands, even millions of members over a few years. Uh, and often it's portrayed, and this is a question to you, it's, it's, it's given to say that this, this is caused by theology or a loss of theology or a compromise of theology in some sort of way. Now, I'm not hearing any of you say that was the driving force in your particular church, but maybe it was. Just comment on that. What is the relationship between theology, sound biblical teaching, and the thriving or dying of a church? I think there are many major factors that help account for the reality that somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of our churches are in decline in America today. One problem is that many many churches today do not have evangelistic zeal. They don't reach out. They have often lost the members who would have embraced that. And so that is a factor. Many churches have devolved into something less than responsibility for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have settled in ways that are not biblical for a kind of togetherness that has lost that zeal. The other major factor I see in our urban areas is related to the rise of uh, larger churches, of the church growth movement. It leads to a context that I call the Christian consumer winner-take-all, especially with regard to families with children. And they have been habituated to a kind of expectations in churches that can be provided by a larger, a larger congregation. And so congregations that cannot provide that find themselves scrambling. If they cannot approximate some of these expectations and ministries and programs that their larger competitors can, they can't reach a critical mass and then grow. And so there's a lot of pressure on smaller churches in urban areas where we simply, as Americans, do drive to what we want, and especially if we have children and we want them to have certain certain things. But I will say this, I do not believe the size of a church tells us that much about what really matters about church. I believe that there's great diversity today among smaller churches, medium-sized churches, and larger churches. And so the stereotypes and the generalizations I'm not impressed with. And I think that whoever wants to pastor in these urban areas today must must grapple with this dynamic of the Christian consumer winner-take-all trajectory that we're seeing. 
the theological health or fidelity of a church, I think, certainly is an issue in some dwindling congregations, but but not in not in every case. There are certainly smaller churches who have dwindled in numbers due to to other factors, but who have remained faithful in the gospel and in proclaiming the gospel. The categories really can't be neatly organized. That if you're growing and medium to larger in size, then you must be faithful and if you're not, then uh, there must be some issue there. But church health, by by many measures, is something that uh, I think when you come upon a church that is uh, reaching out and seeking help from you to to make some of these kinds of decisions, often it's it's difficult to discern or to conduct a, an investigation, a forensic analysis of just what all has happened in the past. Sometimes because I believe the people themselves are not fully aware of where those turns were taken or where the downward trend began, but it is I think still. A a useful exercise to help a church in that kind of situation tell their story. You will hear from many individuals their opinions of what has happened and why we've come to this place, but I find that there's a different dynamic when you gather the church together in one place and ask that question and have them to begin together to tell these stories. There's a, a synergy that takes place there where they begin to feed off of one another and, and almost to, to piece together the different fragments of their collective memory in a way that often gives you a better composite picture of, uh, of how they came to this place than uh, by simply having the individual conversations. Exit interviews can be a great tool if a church begins to see that uh, they're becoming something of a way station for people. They may reach, some churches aren't reaching anyone, but if you're, if you're getting visitor flow and you're reaching people for a time, but they, you can't retain them, I found that doing strategic exit interviews People can articulate and let them tell you why they've left. You learn a lot. And sometimes you'll find that, hey, there's nothing we could do without changing who we insist on being that could have retained these who've left. And sometimes you see, wow, those are things we ought to change and should change. I'm glad we've learned about some of these reasons. We don't want that. That's an unnecessary stumbling block. So exit interviews. Ask those who leave why they left. Ron, you're a part of a connectional church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. You have bishops. So you have a kind of inbuilt support system, accountability system. Say a little bit about how that functions in a time of crisis, in a time of decision about the future of a church. And the two of you may want to comment, Tom and Mark, because you're more familiar by experience with the Congregationalist Free Church tradition, and that's a rather different sort of thing. But are there systems of support and accountability that you would point others to? Uh, yes, that is in place uh, within our denomination. And um, I think what happens in, in settings, though, is that within our denomination, most of our churches are small. They will not be considered as large churches. And there's the assumption that um, because you are small, that you may not necessarily be quite as effective and that you may be a dwindling or dying church. But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, what I perceive would clearly identify a church that's really healthy is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached and you see the, the membership living out their faith. And our denomination, you know, they pass, they can pass down a lot of different things as far as the different training. And with the itinerant system, we can change ministers. And I also see, whereas that can be a plus, there also can be a negative side. 
because understanding the different dynamics within the individual uh, churches, personalities, then, of course, the bishop has the ability to try to find someone that would help match or put that marriage together. Mm. So that helps from a connectional standpoint. And changing pastors like every two to three years can also be an issue that can cause a decline in a church because relationships are not actually given an opportunity to build. And, of course, if you're in a setting where things are not going well, then, of course, you can bail out in a sense, which here again will leave the congregants in a setting where they don't learn biblical ways to resolve conflict. A lot of those churches are small within our connection, and of course they're family-oriented churches also. So that tends to have an effect on it. Within our Baptist life, of course, uh, the resource I think most commonly uh, turned to is the association or maybe the state convention. In my experience, the smaller the church, oftentimes the greater its reliance on the association, particularly where association offers programs for Christian education and other resources that the church doesn't really have access to by way of its own staff or or resources to to gain it elsewhere. And I think uh, many of these resources can be helpful, although associations are often limited, I think, in their ability to, because of the cooperative nature of associations and state conventions, to bring about any kind of meaningful change in the uh, in the attitudes. They can offer options, but association offices and state conventions are often so understaffed that they can't spend the kind of intensive time that really helps uh, a congregation to meaningfully move through that decision-making process. So they can lay out options, but often that's uh, the extent of what they can do. I think one of the most common factors you will find in healthy, growing churches in my own denomination is longevity of a pastor. And yet we know now that the average tenure of a pastor in a Southern Baptist church, I believe, has dropped below two years. It's an extraordinary figure. And it exposes a a dysfunction and a failure and upset at very, very deep levels. We have more and more congregations now that have lost their, they have, they do, they're losing their memory of a healthy time. They're losing their memory and practice of having a pastor that they love, trust, and who has led them through good times and bad. I believe the landscape out there in terms of support and so forth is very weak. I think the landscape is, is very brutal and Darwinian for both pastors who are struggling and they're sort of just burning out and leaving and congregations who see that role as, uh, you know, it's a turnstile. It's one after another. And they, they really don't have a tradition of health and growth to fall back on and envision. If I can comment on that, one of the reasons I think that churches will often uh, get in touch with, with me about seeking a student pastor is uh, because they have dwindled to such a low number. They are made up primarily of, of older adults. And then I believe fall prey to a line of thinking that says if we can have a younger pastor, someone like they might find, of course, in a theological school preparing for ministry, then we might be better able to attract younger families and uh, regain some vitality and get a, a leg up.
It's an understandable line of thinking, but I think it's a largely flawed line of thinking and mode of of, uh, of recovery from, from those situations. We're almost out of time, but I want to ask each of you to put on your pastoral caps now. This podcast goes out to lots of people, and there's no doubt in my mind that you're speaking to some pastors right now who are struggling in very precarious situations in terms of the viability of their church and maybe even thinking about, is it time for this church to close its doors? Speak to that pastor from your heart as a pastor to their heart as a pastor. What would you say to them, Mark, Ron, and then Tom? I would say that my inadvertently kind of finding myself in a role I would have never envisioned existing for myself of this mediator and uh, midwife-type role for these churches has turned out to be extraordinarily fascinating and satisfying. And I would love to see a crop of folk come up who actually adopt this role of saying, I want to learn and study to diagnose these congregations and ask the question, how can we get from where we are to a much, much better place and have in mind some of these new creative ways of saying, here's what we have now. How can we invest what we have in terms of material and human resources in a way that is making the best stewardship uh, for a more vibrant and healthy future? And for some of them, they will be maybe in a position as I have been in to say, and that means even if if I'm not going to be going forward with that congregation, you can play a role uh, that is unique and special and can help move a church to a new future that they never could have, in, have envisioned. It is happening in some places. Then, George, I would say to the pastors, number one, understand your calling. You've got to be sure of your calling so that when the trials and tribulations of life will come, you'll be able to stand. When you accept a role as a pastor, accept it from the standpoint that God has placed you there, and it's a marriage. There's no marriage that's without its trials and tribulations. And you do all that you know to do to love the congregants the way Christ loves his church. And it doesn't matter the number. Don't allow the worldviews to dictate what God is saying in that setting, whether it's five, fifty, or five hundred minister and love them where they are and as long as God is pleased then that's all that matters and God will take that and it will bear fruit I would second what uh, Pastor Sterling was saying and, and would do so really using a story I've heard you tell before Dean of uh, I believe it was your ministry uh, while you were up in the northeast in the Boston area during your studies at Harvard and the story you tell of doing the funeral uh, one day for uh, someone at the request of uh, of the funeral home who had no minister and for whom no one showed up to read scripture to proclaim the the Christian hope and uh, that uh, I think too in this case is true as Pastor Sterling was just saying we have a, a calling here it's not accompanied with all kinds of conditions. Uh, that as long as it's uh, a healthy church, as long as it's a church that's had no problems, as long as it's a church that uh, fits this and that and the other criteria that I have, it is to preach the Word, it is to be faithful in season and out, uh, and it is to love and shepherd the people of God, however many or few they are, and to have through all of that also the larger view of, uh, of Christ's work 
through his church in many places and ways and forms. And uh, it's no lack of faith uh, to to lead a church uh, to a, a good end. In fact, I think it might require greater faith to trust that uh, that Jesus will complete and perfect uh, his work through the church, regardless of and sometimes even in spite of what has happened in this place with this particular uh, local congregation. And uh, we, we all need to, to have that perspective and to help lead our people to have that. This we know is true. Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And there is a future for everybody with Jesus Christ. My guests today on the Beeson Podcast have been Dr. Mark Devine, Reverend Ronald Sterling, and Dr. Tom Fuller. Thank you all for sharing from your heart and your experience, and thank you for your love for Jesus Christ and for His church. God bless you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.